A warm welcome to everybody on this lovely sunny day. Um, <clears throat> I haven't been here for several weeks, so I'm very pleased to find the church is still here. Um, I've been on holiday and then I was unwell, but all is well now and I'm just delighted to be back. My name is Caroline Blair. I've been a member of this congregation for 11 and a half years. Um, and I can remember the first time I came into this church, I just felt so welcome and so at home. And I really hope the same feeling will um, apply to other people. Today's service is about living with uncertainty. By accepting uncertainties, you've chosen to sail into uncharted waters. But even in the face of uncertainty, you are still sailing forward, while the majority of people who seem so sure of themselves are back on dry land. And some words from the physicist Richard Feynman. I can live with doubt and uncertainty and not knowing. I think it is much more interesting to live not knowing than to have answers that might be wrong. If we will only allow that as we progress, we remain unsure. We will leave opportunities for alternatives. We will not become enthusiastic for the fact, the knowledge, the absolute truth of the day, but to remain almost always uncertain. In order to make progress, one must leave the door to the unknown ajar. I thought that was interesting, um, the fact that he was you know, a world-renowned physicist, but still speaking up for uncertainty. So I'm going to light our palace, as Unitarian and Unitarian Universalist churches are doing all around the country and in other parts of the world, and it's kind of the symbol that links us all together. of peace, may we find hope. In this place of connection, may we find community. In this place of rest, let us feel the unrest of our hearts that calls us to address injustice. In this place made sacred by memory, let us each feel ourselves part of the new that grows from the old. In faith and with hope, we light this chalice. I've got a reading from The Antidote by Oliver Berkman. He writes, um, he's written a couple of books that are um, his kind of take on the cult of self-help and optimism and endless positivity. Um, and I think he casts a helpfully sceptical eye over the whole industry. To be a good human, says the American philosopher Martha Nussbaum, is to have a kind of openness to the world, an ability to trust uncertain things beyond your own control that can lead you to be shattered in very extreme circumstances for which you are not to blame. That says something very important about the ethical life, that it is based on a trust in the uncertainty and on a willingness to be exposed. It is based on being more like a plant than a jewel, 
something rather fragile, but whose very particular beauty is inseparable from that fragility. Uncertainty brings with it a fear of failure. Optimism is wonderful. Goals can sometimes be useful. Even positive thinking and positive visualisation have their benefits. The problem is we have developed the habit of chronically overvaluing positivity and of the skills of doing in how we think, how we think about things that happen. We chronically undervalue negativity and the not doing skills such as resting in uncertainty, getting more friendly towards failure. To use an old cliché of therapy speak, we spend too much of our lives seeking closure. Even those of us who mock such clichés are often motivated by a craving to put an end to uncertainty and anxiety, whether by convincing ourselves that the future is bright or resigning ourselves despondently to the expectation that it won't be. What we need more of instead is what the psychologist Paul Purcell calls open chill. Yes, this is an awkward new word, but its very awkwardness is a reminder of the spirit that it expresses, which includes embracing imperfection, easing up on the search for neat solutions. The chief benefit of open chill, Paul Purcell claims, is not certitude or even calm or comfort but rather the strange, excited feeling of being presented with and grappling with the tremendous mysteries life offers. Ultimately, what defines the cult of optimism and the culture of positive thinking, even in its most mystically tinged new age forms, is that it hates a mystery. It seeks to make things certain, to make happiness permanent and final. And yet this kind of happiness, even if you do manage to achieve it, is shallow and unsatisfying. The greatest benefit of negative capability and the true power of negative thinking is that it lets the mystery back in. <clears throat> Paul Purcell spent a large part of his life waging a lonely battle to get the concept of awe accepted by the psychological establishment as one of the primary human emotions, alongside such standards as love, joy, anger, fear and sadness. Unlike all the other emotions, he argued, awe is all of our feelings rolled up into one intense one. You can't peg it as just happy, sad, afraid, angry or hopeful. Instead, it's a matter of experiencing all these feelings, and yet paradoxically experiencing no clearly identifiable or at least easily describable emotion. Awe, he writes, is like trying to assemble a complex jigsaw puzzle with pieces missing. There's never any closure in an awe-inspired life, only consistent acceptance of the mysteries of life. We're never allowed to know when this fantastic voyage might end, but that's part of the life-disorientating chaos that makes this choice so thrillingly difficult, which seems to me as good a description as any of a happiness that is worthy of the name. This kind of happiness has nothing to do with the easy superficialities of positive thinking, with the grinning insistence on optimism at all costs or the demand that success be guaranteed. It involves much more difficulty, but also much more authenticity. The negative path to happiness, then, is a different kind of path, but it is also a path to a different kind of destination. Maybe it makes more sense to say the path is the destination. A good traveller has no fixed plans, says the Chinese sage Lao Tzu, and is not intent upon arriving. 
I have a little bit of serendipity with this reading. Um, I came back from South Africa and um, I had um, tick bite fever and was quite unwell and took a long time to get better and I um, had to lie in bed and at one point was reduced to reading Enid Blyton books. My concentration was so bad and it rather hung on over me that I'd promised to do this service and already submitted a title and had no thoughts whatsoever. I was incapable of having them. And I was actually in bed and there was only one book I could reach without getting out of bed. And that was this book, Bringing God Home by Forest Church. Um, and I just picked it up and started reading it and I thought, oh, that's got something to say on the topic. So obviously my guardian angel was um, looking over me that day. <coughs> I hope this makes some sense. Um, I just sort of wrote down the passage rather at random. Although I know now how and where to look for it, life's meaning springs more surely from following a direction than from arriving at a destination. Its goal may be veiled, but the journey itself is part of our destination. G.K. Chesterton asked, how can we contrive to be at once astonished at the world and yet at home in it? Wariness of unknown consequences can prevent us from doing anything of consequence to turn, our <coughs> excuse me, to turn our life around. We may not know enough to tinker with our lifeboats. No, we may know enough to tinker with our lifeboats, but our backyard remains a dry dock, not a mooring for them. By the time we finish all the repairs we deem necessary, it may be too late to sail. Life on this planet is billions of years old. Our span of three score years and ten, give or take a score or two, is barely time enough to get our minds wet. By cosmologists' latest reckoning, there are some 100 billion stars in our galaxy, and ours is one of perhaps 100 billion galaxies. And that is only our cosmos, there could be others. Divide the stars among us, and in our galaxy alone, every individual alive on Earth today should be the proud possessor of 16 personal stars. If you choose to name your stars, which is actually a fun thing to do, you can't start too soon. Naming one's own stars is more than a lifelong project. By my reckoning, the cosmic star-to-person ratio is 1.6 trillion stars to one person. So what do we do? Do we name our stars and shake our heads in humility and wonder? No, we don't. We sit on our single grain of sand on this vast cosmic beach and argue over who has the goods on God. Is it the atheist or the theist? The Hindu or the Buddhist? The Catholic or the Protestant? The Muslim or the Jew? We duel, sometimes to the death, over which religious teacher has the best insider information on God and the afterlife. Is it Jesus, the Buddha, Muhammad? How about Nietzsche, Gandhi or Freud? Billions of accidents conspired to give each of these compelling teachers the opportunity even to teach. Knowing this, pondering numbers beyond reckoning, doesn't strip me of my faith. It inspires my faith. It makes me humble. It fills me with awe. If our religion doesn't inspire in us a humble affection for one another and a profound sense of awe at the wonder of being, one of two things has happened. Either it has failed us, or we it. Should either be the case, we must go back to the beginning and start all over again. We must reboot our lives 
until the wonder we experience proves itself authentic by the quality of our response to it. I may not believe as Jesus did, but I should dearly hope to love as Jesus did, to forgive and embrace others as unconditionally as he. The principal challenge of theology today is to provide symbols and metaphors that will bring us in all our glorious diversity into close and more celebratory kinship with one another as sons and daughters of life and death. So where do we go from here? Coming full circle, I take my cue from T.S. Eliot. What we call the beginning is often the end, and to make an end is to make a beginning. The end is where we start from. Words there from the Reverend Forest Church, who died a little while ago. Now, imagine you go into a, a, a tall building with several floors, and you decide to go up in the lift. So you get into the lift, and there's the panel with the buttons on it. So there's a button for each floor. There's an alarm button, in case you fall over and break your leg. There's a button you can hold the doors. So if you see somebody rushing towards the lift and you're feeling in a good mood that day, you hold the doors for them. And there's a button that's kind of the opposite. You can close the doors. If you see someone you don't want to speak to running towards you, you press that. Now what happens if you press that? There's a little pause, the doors close, and the lift goes up. What happens if you don't press that button is that there's a little pause, the doors close, and the lift goes up. And in fact, that button that is marked as doors close does nothing. And the reason it's there is because people like to feel in control. They like to feel that when the doors on a lift close, they have made them close, rather than them just closing because that's what lift doors are designed to do. Um, And it's just an example of how important it is to people to feel that they are in control of what happens to them. Being out of control makes us feel very uncomfortable. And there's been numerous research projects. People will give themselves major electric shocks as long as they know that they are doing it to themselves and they can stop. They can't tolerate it if it's, if it's not within their control. One of the quickest ways to make us feel that we are losing control is to um, make us feel that we just don't have the knowledge that we want to have. We don't have the answers. But how many times really do we have the answers? We tend to think that in terms of knowledge, science is at the top of the tree. It's all to do with observation, measurement, very precise, very objective. But in fact, scientists are among the people who find it most difficult and most painful to change their minds. Um, It's sometimes, um, you know, you can look back at the history of science and people have found it just literally unbearable to change a belief that they have held for many years. I can understand that. It's human nature. Maybe their whole reputation has rested on a belief that turns out not to be supported by the evidence and they will really fight against that. Now, in the book that I referred to earlier by Oliver Berkman, um, The Antidote, it's subtitled Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Um, He refers to the work of a researcher called Kevin Dunbar. Now, what Kevin Dunbar did was he was kind of embedded in science research laboratories for many months He just filmed what was going on, blended into the background. And what he found 
was that these scientists would start off with a hypothesis. So say they were working for a drugs company, they would start off with a hypothesis that this drug was going to have a positive effect. They would do their experiments, and if the result they got was positive, they were very pleased. They would go and talk to everybody about it. They would publish as quickly as they could. If the result was negative, they would redo the experiment, perhaps several times. They'd tweak the method, see if there was something wrong with their method. If it still didn't work, they would just park it. They wouldn't publish, they wouldn't talk about it, they'd just go on to something else. You can see how quickly a bias will be built into a scientific method if only positive results are ever disclosed. And that's science, that's hard knowledge. If if science is subject to that kind of emotional pressure, what hope is there for the rest of us, those of us who are not scientists and who want to know more difficult, less objective questions? Being uncertain in the long term, it it just makes us feel unsupported and insecure. We like to feel right, we like to feel confident. Now, I want to just make it clear that the word right is applied both to knowledge and to values. Now, I have no problem with saying we should try and establish some immovable values. And if I say it's good to be kind to people and it's bad to be cruel to people, I don't really want people coming up to me at coffee time afterwards and saying, actually, I want to put the contrary point of view that cruelty is really what I believe to be true. That is a value that you know, I'm happy to um, say I'm not going to be moved on that. Knowledge is a different matter. You know, trying to keep open to people who may have other aspects that we haven't thought of. Some questions are just harder than others. What kind of soil is best for growing rhododendrons? If Christianity and Islam both claim to be the one true faith, must one or both of them just be worthless and wrong? Now, the answer to one of those questions, I would suggest, is well-drained and acidic. (laughs) (laughs) The answer to the other one may be not so easy to give. Um, Now, there are three possible responses to very difficult questions, which I'm going to call the woodlouse response, the flatfish response, and the baleen whale response. Now, a woodlouse just can't bear being in the full glare of uncertainty, so it scurries under a rock and makes its world very, very small. It doesn't want to see further than a few inches in front of its eyes, and in that very small, controlled environment, the woodlouse is happy. Now, in times when we're under great stress, that's actually probably the right thing for us to do. We're entitled to look after ourselves. But it's not great as a a principle for life. You are shutting out an awful lot of world. There's an old um, saying that there are no atheists in foxholes in the terms of trench warfare, not actually holes with foxes in. I don't know much about their spiritual views. Um, But putting aside any sort of Um, spiritual dilemmas or moral dilemmas on the grounds that, oh, I can think about that ten minutes from my death, is not really a great principle for life. Well, here we all are. We've all got up on a sunny Sunday morning and come into a church to to listen to somebody talking about uncertainty. So I would suggest that at the moment everybody is out from underneath their rock, prepared to look a bit further. Now, flatfishes can look a long way. They may become great scholars and study for many years what they can see. But they can't bear anything that's ambiguous. 
that eye sees that, that eye sees that, that's unbearable. So they squeeze both their eyes onto the same side of their body. And although they can see a long way, they can only see in one direction. Um, so both, I think, religious people and atheists can be very inclined to be a bit flatfishy. They say, I, you know, it's all sorted. Everything I learn just confirms the view I already have. And it seems to me that it's not a good use of your brains, which are capable of actually dealing with constant new um, input to just say, no, I'm only going to see in that direction and nothing else. Um, in Oliver Berkman's other book, which is uh, rather pleasingly called Help, how, how to Become Slightly Happier and Get a Bit More Done, so a small self-help book, he ponders on the position of somebody who deliberately limits their attempts to broaden their knowledge. Consider it mathematically. Compared with the, the, the universe of your ignorance, the terrain of your knowledge is maybe the size of Liechtenstein. And what's the probability that most of the good stuff lies within Liechtenstein's borders? It's in the shadowy world of the unknown unknowns that the biggest dangers lie, but also the biggest opportunities. Now, a baleen whale, I only learnt this word last week, is a whale with no teeth. Some whales have big teeth, they can gnaw on a seal. Some whales don't have teeth, and they have to eat krill, little tiny things, in rather large quantities, I think. Um, now, in order to get their quantity of krill, they swim along with their mouth wide open all the time, and all the flotsam and jetsam of the sea just go into their mouth. And then this is the process, mouth wide open, everything goes in, and then their body has various processes to filter stuff out and judge whether it's going to be useful to the whale or not and get rid of the stuff that it can't use. Now, all sorts of stuff might get caught up on the way. It may take a long time to filter some things out. They may you know, reach the end of their life and there's still unfiltered stuff um, attached to the baleen whale. But surely, out of the three animals, it's the baleen whale who's having a life. His big mouth taking in everything and then, and then working out what it can use. Um, and we, if we can open ourselves up to... Both sides, of the, um, both sides of this are important. We open ourselves up, but we also filter and judge. Um, and if you cut either of those out, you're missing out an awful lot of um, stuff that would perhaps be helpful to us. Now, you don't know, when you've got a very difficult question, issues of life and death and so on, um, in what form an answer might come. It might be enigmatic, it might be very fragmentary, um, it might be very puzzling to us. But it's what sometimes is called a moment of disclosure. It could come from a bit of music, something in a book you don't even really understand, something you haven't even heard right. You think you've heard something on the radio and actually you've misheard it, but what you misheard suddenly makes sense to you. Stories. Um, just little bits and pieces. Um, now, some of people in here know the Reverend Bill Darlison, who ha- until recently was, um, was president of the Unitarian General Assembly. He's a good friend of this church and um, was the minister at Dublin for many years. And recently, just in conversation, he said, now lots of people can't deal with mythology, They think everything is either science or just rubbish. Now, if you take mythology in its widest sense, it means anything that comes to us obliquely and not literally. Um, 
for example, the poem on the, uh, that's referred to on the front of your order service from Lord of the Rings. Um, all that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. The old is strong does not wither, deep roots are not reached by the frost. It refers to somebody who wanders in the wilderness for many years before becoming a king. And the wandering is what fits him for kingship, um, even though he doesn't really know where he is, but he all the time has um, sort of moral objectives. And it's the wandering that have, have made him what he is. Um, and sometimes settling for something that feels ambiguous will bring us closer to a truth than forcing a logical answer that really you're, you're, you're um, ignoring your, your deeper feelings. Um, in well, something I don't know who he is, Kyle Capp's book, Living by Faith, he writes, to live according to a plurality of stories means living with tension and inconsistencies and irreconcilable differences. Sometimes because the fragments tell a false tale or conceal much more than they reveal. Often because each fragment taken in hands becomes a new way of looking at the whole. Disclosing something different about a reality that passes all understanding. And this is the sentence I like. Shattered stories are part of the human condition. So I like that, that we, our life is shattered stories and we can't always put them together. We just have to deal sometimes with the fragments and just let them settle, take time to filter them out. People have dealt with fragmentation and uncertainty since the beginning of our species. And I think it's you know, dealing with that uncertainty that has led to what I would recognise as actual wisdom. We can't control the universe. If we try to control the universe, we just make our universe very, very small. So be a baleen whale. Sit with uncertainty and ambiguity. There's, um, there's a picture online of a Buddhist retreat. Don't know anything else about it. It's got a sign over the door that says, don't believe everything you think. So that's um, just what I'd like you to take away from this. Thank you for listening. Now, before Jenny plays um, some lovely music to fit, conclude the service, I deliberately chose some slightly enigmatic closing words. So a little poem called Blessing the Boats. May the tide that is entering even now, the lip of our understanding, carry you out beyond the face of fear. May you kiss the wind, then turn from it, certain that it will love your back. May you open your eyes to water and may you, in your innocence, sail through this to that. Thank you.